we are out here standing up for women's rights because we believe that women's rights are human rights. We stand up for equity and equality in communities of color. We stand up for immigrants, union workers, and we stand for matters concerning environmental justice. We stand against the violence and exploitation of any and every vulnerable and marginalized population. We stand for justice. And when we stand up, we show up and we speak up. Good evening. My name is Reverend Leslie Dwight, and I'm the Minister of Social Justice at Community of Hope AME Church. I want to first bring you greetings on behalf of our pastor, Reverend Tony Lee, as we welcome you to another episode in the Hope Activism Institute's training. This is part two in a series that we're calling Power to the People. Last week, we honored Dr. Martin Luther King and all that he did to promote equity and justice in a nonviolent manner throughout our nation. And tonight, we are blessed to be in dialogue with Reverend Stephen Green from the Greater Allen AME Cathedral of New York, who's going to walk us through the Dr. King steps for bringing nonviolent social change. He has been one of the nation's youngest and leading human and civil rights activists. He previously served as the National Director of the Youth and College Division of the NAACP, the oldest and the largest grassroots civil rights organization in the nation. He directed more than 30,000 young activists in over 800 youth councils and college chapters across the nation. He just isn't experienced, but he's educated. He's a graduate of Morehouse College and a member of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated. So if you're tuning in, don't move from that seat because we're getting ready to go into the inner workings of what it means to do community organizing in such a time as this. We'll be back. All right. So I always like to start this thing with an icebreaker and you have the privilege of being our guest right before we go into Black History Month. And you know, for us, Black history is every day. It's our, it's our experiences every day. So I just wanted to know from you, what is your favorite Black history moment? Sure. I think for me, it is uh, the fact that Claudette Colvin was the precursor to Rosa Parks, who inspired the Montgomery bus boycott. And a lot of times we remember the sainted uh, and sainted memory, Rosa Parks, who was a deaconess in the Amy Church and a stewardess at that time, I guess. Uh, but now, you know, to, to know that there was a young lady who came before her who inspired this moment of, of resistance, I think is just something that we often don't highlight when we talk about the importance of Black history and, and, and particularly the Montgomery Boys Boycott. So I want to lift up Claudette Coven as my Black history moment tonight. That's phenomenal. You know, when I think about my Black history moment, it's personal. A couple of years ago, my big mom, I don't know if those folks out there know about a big mama, but I had a big mama down in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and her house was made a historic landmark because my family was involved in the civil rights movement. They were a part of the planning of the civil rights movement. And Martin Luther King actually came and sat at my big mom's table and they did organizing work right there in her kitchen. So I can read the history books, right? But to know that that kind of stuff comes out of your own family and out of the work of everyday people, that's like my most cherished Black history moment. Yeah, so I want to jump into our conversation today where we are talking about community organizing. We spent the last couple of weeks, you know, equipping our folks around activism. We've talked about advocacy. We've talked about digital organizing, but digital organizing is only one piece of the larger pie around community organizing. So today, I wanted to kind of pull from a work that you did where you kind of 
set the framework for the six steps to nonviolent social change. Do you want to give us a little bit of history on what that is? Sure. I think that, you know, a lot of times when we consider the, the movement, we often forget that there was structure and organizing history that goes into the strategic change that the movement brought towards uh, this country. There were effective policy changes that took place, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and the Civil Rights Act of 1964, as well as the Fair Housing Act of 1968. And those policy changes were precipitated by grassroots organizing. Saul Alinsky uh, has a community model of organizing uh, that is a Chicago model that is adapted uh, by the Kingian tradition. And so Dr. King's model or the six steps of nonviolent social change are as one information gathering, two public education, three personal commitment, four negotiations, five direct action, six reconciliation. And I'll break that down for, for folks who are taking notes tonight and really wondering how they can use these steps to precipitate change in their local communities. Information gathering is the first step, is that whenever you have a cause or an issue in your community that uh, inspires you to change or you recognize as a moment that, that requires a, a new vision, that you gather all the facts. So we want to make sure that we are fact-driven and that we begin uh, building a case for our transformative moment through information gathering. I'll use this as an example as, as the most, most recent campaign was this campaign in Kentucky uh, to advocate for Breonna Taylor. And before we went to Kentucky, um, we made sure we researched all the facts surrounding the case around Breonna Taylor. That means reviewing all the articles, beginning to have conversations with family members, requesting from the Freedom of Information Act the police records, the information re regarding the arrest warrants. And so all of that information became public as we began to build a campaign around advancing justice for Breonna Taylor. And so information gathering, if you, and then it doesn't always have to be in a case of police brutality, but even in your local community, if you're dealing with uh, school despair or uh, disparities in your school around uh, suspensions or around uh, other disciplinary infractions, it is to collect the data from your local municipality, from your school district uh, around these issues. And once you have that information and you've gathered the information, the next step is public education. Well, How can we, hold on, can, before you go there, can we go back for a little bit around the gathering the information piece? Uh, because I think it's so important that we frame that um, properly just because we have a situation where we have information at our fingertips. Right. And so one of the things that we saw in the election, this last election cycle, is that there was a lot of information coming out everywhere. But then our people in particular were subject to misinformation and disinformation. So how do we make sure that the information that we put our hands on is actually factual information? Sure. One is just by checking where this information comes from. Uh, and checking the sources and, and ensuring that we are uh, fact checking the sources, you relying on trusted sources and trusted resources and valid voices and trusted voices in the community. So that means, you know, local newspaper is also a good trusted source. Oftentimes, uh, anything with a dot org is a little better than dot com uh, often, uh, you know, and, and then not just, you know, taking information from Facebook but really doing the vetting and the due diligence to ensure that information is accurate. 
Yeah. One of the things that I try to do sometimes is when a newspaper source is citing a source, I try to go to the original source to make sure that they get it right because sometimes even they don't get it right. And sometimes depending on your news source, they may want to have their own slant on the situation too. So thank you for that because I think it's really important that especially if we're going to, I mean, confrontational is the wrong word, but if we are going to challenge something, you always want to make sure that you step out there um, right and correct, right? So go ahead, you were going on to your next step. Sure, and taking that information that is factual, uh, whether it be from you know uh, the internet or other personal sources and conversations, and then beginning to build a campaign through public education. And what does that look like? It means uh, perhaps uh, town halls or forums or op-eds or letters to the editor in your local newspaper, but just beginning to begin to build the public consensus around the information that you found to be true. Uh, also using digital resources. I know that you all have had previous conversations around digital resources. I like to use Canva, C-A-N-V-A.com, which is a free resource for people. It is PowerPoint 2.0 uh, or clip art or word art that we used to use uh, back in the day, if you will, or early 2000s or late 90s. But it is a souped up way of, of being able to document information, it's taking that information and putting it on your social media pages so that people can share it and begin to have these town halls and forums and begin to meet with uh, people in your uh, community around these issues and also building a coalition. Because anytime you're building a cause or a campaign, you want to expand your coalition. You want to have people who can join you in the fight and, and understanding that faith communities, partner with labor groups, partner with civic organizations, partner with youth groups. If you're doing something that is particularly related to young people, it'd be great to have young people uh, at the forefront of that conversation, at the forefront of that coalition. And, and so it is important that we educate people about the facts. So can you go into a little bit more detail? Because you talked, um, one of the examples you talked about was doing town halls. Can you give an example of like what goes into that? If I'm just an everyday person and I'm trying to build awareness around an issue, what are some of the steps I need to take in order to do a town hall? Sure, I think, uh, and I have a toolkit and a resource that will be uploaded online with specific action steps on how do you build a town hall going all the way to finding a location, advertising the date for that meeting, as well as understanding the importance of uh, having trusted speakers who would speak about those issues that you're bringing up. So if you're talking about school policing and, or school sentencing or, or around disciplinary infractions, having a member of the school board as one of your panelists, having some a parent, having a student, perhaps having a school administrator, would just begin to have the variety of conversation that you would need to go into depth about the issue that you're trying to bring up. And in, because we're in this virtual space now, Zoom affords us the opportunity to be able to expand those conversations, whereas we would not be able to get everyone to come to a place on a Wednesday night for a meeting, but now they can join and hop on online and hop on over their phone or watch even uh, on like we're doing now, watching at the Community of Hope uh, TV station, if you will. <laughs> well, those are some things that I think that are, are, are very helpful. One of the things that um, we did when we held a town hall that I thought was really helpful, we did one that was in the midst of the government shutdown under the last administration. And you might remember that where the government was shut down for more than 30 days. We were intentional about inviting our elected officials, but we wanted them to listen. 
And the reason that we did it was because our goal was to educate them on what was happening with our residents in our community. Because when you looked in the media, the trusted sources of information, it wasn't uplifting the voices of the black community, wow. right? So you would hear the impact of what was going on with white middle class, right? And maybe the lower income folks that are, you know, within the Caucasian communities, but you weren't hearing the struggles of the black community. And when I tell you that the power that was in that room, those stories moved people to tears because we in that in that story, what you weren't hearing in the news was the person that just got excited to, you know, with their new government job and they just had a baby. And but because the government was shut down, now my baby doesn't have health care coverage, right? In the dead of winter. That was we weren't hearing about the fact that, you know, the contractors were still being required to go to work and and in all the solutions to, you know, fund, um, make sure that government employees were going to get their money back. You weren't hearing about, you know, the contractors who they weren't, they weren't going to be able to recoup that money. And so I, I just want to say that, you know, de depending on who you want to listen to you matters. And then that defines like your stakeholders when you're trying to put together a town hall type situation. Um, because I think that that will be what we found in that particular situation was that it made for the most impact. It wasn't just a bunch of people coming together to air their grievances, but it really was about an information exchange. Um, and one of the great things that came out of that was that one of our congressional leaders developed a whole um, legislative piece around some of the some of the issues that he heard emerge out of that session. So I just wanted to co-sign on what you were saying and to add to that because I think that that town hall piece, in terms of it being an educational tool, is extremely extremely important. I'll go to number three, which is about personal commitment. Dr. King, um, in his teaching, and I guess also in the movement of SCLC, was deeply grounded in spiritual principles and spiritual truths, and, and recognized that nonviolence requires one to be grounded in the discipline of ahimsa and radical love and action, which is nonviolence, um, which is Gandhian tradition, if you will, or philosophy of nonviolence, which is about a soul force. And I think that is what this personal commitment is about, is, is after you have done the education and you've done the research, is that you want to check your privileges and check your commitments and ensure that you are committed to the truth and committed to the long haul of this campaign or struggle that you're in and not doing it for any um, sense of personal validation or, or or anything else, but but you're truly invested in building and realizing beloved community. I think that is what is so important in this work is that it requires us to tap into something that is far greater than ourselves because the work gets hard it gets it, it gets tough it you know you may not be the most popular person by trying to challenge the system and status quo but it requires one to be deeply invested in there and committed to the work that they've been called to do and so that's why personal commitment is extremely important so let me ask you a challenging question perhaps um, my experience has been that in the organizing space, you can have a group of people who are down for the cause until it's time for them to be down for the cause. Mm -hmm. So talking about commitment, what advice would you give to people who, when it comes to remaining, commit, remaining committed, they find they're leading an effort, they're organizing people, they can have 
a call list of a thousand people that they've you know had contact with and they've had favorable conversations but when at times it comes time to move to the next level that list dwindles down to just a few people what advice would you give them sure is that you know shun not humble beginnings is what scripture says and also recognize that there is enough within you and those who are committed to be able to advance the causes that we are committed to that we have you know because we look at history from the past tense we see that the how successful the civil rights movement was but we must understand it was only three percent of the black church that was a part of the civil rights movement it was not every black church it was not every black pastor it was not all black people um but there were some who were committed and there were nine young people who went into a, a little rock central high school to integrate it and they changed the world there was one person by the name of ruby bridges who went to her school and changed the world so it does not about the quantity but it's about the quality of those who are committed to that work and to those who are committed to advancing the cause of liberation and justice absolutely and one of the other questions that i have is like we're moving through this uh list in in a linear fashion but is it is it um i guess what i'm trying to say is do we have to repeat the cycles or are the cycles ongoing or the steps ongoing sure i think the steps build upon each other and i think that in each new campaign you start from the top i think in each new campaign you start with building uh with information and public education okay perfect all right let's go to the step number four all right step four is negotiation is that after you have been committed and you check your privileges and you have done the public education and you've done the research now it's important that you begin to build a consensus with your opposition that you we intend to recognize that we're not here to change people per se but to but but people change institutions and recognize that the goal is to never attack a person but it is to always be grounded in the awareness and truth that people can change institutions. And so we begin to move into negotiations to begin to meet with, with uh, legislators, meet with policy officials, meet with politicians, meet with your school administrators, and begin to have a conversation with them about what it you know about the changes that you anticipate about the changes you participate you precipitate happening and, and and then hope that they would begin to um you know meet your demands and then and then the goal is that hopefully this is as far as you need to go right that if you get to the table of negotiation and you recognize that you know here is where we can you know find uh parts of inter points of intersection and where we can change and where we can grow together then we'll make it happen there and if not we must also recognize that there requires other steps right when we when we first went to louisville kentucky we met with the mayor met with the city council persons trying to get them to fire the cops or arrest the cops who killed brianna taylor and you know they were asking us well why would we do it and what makes us what would give us the credence to do said thing we know that they did this and we know they did that but do you have any evidence and so we presented our evidence as best as we knew and they decided to meet with resistance and that is what leads to the next uh, escalated uh, step in negotiating nonviolent direct action which is actually engaging in direct action and that is the point of confrontation a creative tension that is created to strike the opposition and to awaken the moral consciousness and to provide the moral framing that is necessary for social transformation 
Wow. So let's dig in there for a second, um, because is it likely that you can go to the table in these type of situations? If you've been involved in this work for some time, I'm going to, I'm not going to say, is it likely, I'm going to say, how likely is it that um, you reach what you're looking for? You reach goal upon the first conversation. Yes uh not often right i'll say that is that you know it's not always likely that you know and even frederick Douglass says it like this power concedes nothing without a demand never has and never will and so we recognize that power requires us to push towards social transformation through collective will and collective agency uh i think it you know we we see that uh, but on the other side on the converse we we've seen that with uh pushing back and forth like when when, when president trump uh imposed a muslim ban when he decided to separate children at their borders when he decided to deport people is that we had to push back we had to relent but on day one of a new administration uh president joseph biden repealed all of those uh draconian laws uh off of the book and began to move forward and so you know it wasn't it did not require that level of force that we had to express under a under a um, trump administration but it provided us a different landscape uh, to, to move forward. Yeah, except that, you know, under a new under a new administration, it was easier, but it still required, it goes back to that step that you were talking about in step three, remaining committed, because sure. you still had to build the issue and you still had to have the tough conversations and you still had to um, do, you know, the pieces of building direct action to build awareness. Um, I wanted to ask you about negotiations really quickly um, before we move on. Negotiations means that at some point there's something that you're willing to concede. Sure. How do people prepare to go into a negotiation? Yes, I think going into negotiations, one must be prepared to for that, so that you will may not get everything that you want uh, at the first go round. Is that we we have a vision of abolition and we have a vision of liberation, and that must be our goal. But we must also understand that it's it's important to take the steps towards. That, that that goal is to take the steps towards liberation, take the steps toward uh, freedom and justice. And I think that is what uh, sometimes requires us to go back to the drawing board. And sometimes we may be frustrated and upset, but we build a new, we, we, we go for the extra mile. We try to move forward. Uh, and we try to 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 make uh, an adjustment. Uh, is that the goal of of the the movement for to protect the right to vote was not to get an was not to get a uh, a voting rights act, but it was to get an amendment to the constitution to ensure the fairness and effectiveness of the right to vote. And they ended up with a voting rights act that had to be approved by Congress every 20 years or renewed by Congress every 20 years. And we saw in 2010 as they gutted. Uh, the Voting Rights Act in Section 4B of the Voting Rights Act uh, that that we we lost the 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 teeth of the Voting Rights Act and so now we are back at the drawing board we saw voter ID laws and we saw all these things and we had to overcome them and I think that is what you know we we see in negotiations that you may not get it all but 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 some plant some water uh, but God gives the increase absolutely. And so I want to um, just with both negotiation and direct action, are there examples of things that you've specifically been involved in? Can you tell us about a time that with a negotiation that went really well and then something that didn't go so well and you actually had to take, you know, use your steps in the direct action piece? 
Sure. I can't remember a time where it went really well, per se. <laughs> but I do know some times where it did not go well. Uh, and that was one, particularly, I think, around 2015 and during the height of the Flint water crisis that we sat and met with then-Governor Rick Snyder and the mayor of Flint to begin to talk about this switch and change that they made from the, the state water system to another water system that, that provided this lead infestation in the pipes. And we met with the mayor and we and, the, and we met with the governor and we're not able to receive the answer that we needed for them to, you know, to 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 basically, you know, dismantle those pipes and break break them to, to build a new, only to discover that now in 2020, which is around 2021 rather than six years later that Rick Snyder has charges uh, uh, and has been indicted for his neglect. And so, you know, it shows that as Dr. King says, the more awkward the universe is long, but it does bend towards justice. It may not happen, change does not happen overnight. And I think that's what's something that we should always remind those who wish to be engaged in this work. As I've been engaged in this work for up to 10 to 12 years of my life now, just as, a, as an organizer, as an activist, and the winds have not been quick. They have not been speedy. They have not been overnight, but each and every one of them have been uh, diligent and overwhelmingly uh, at the end of the day, we push towards justice. And I think in the same case with Breonna Taylor is that, you know, although we did not get ultimate justice, which would have been those cops that murdered her held responsible for her death, is that there were some, there was one at least that was held responsible for misguided shooting and that we believe that we will go back to trial and have another grand jury and hopefully an attorney general that will investigate these cases. But also on the other side, we recognize that as we continue to press that there was, uh, you know, the new administration, a new police chief and firing of those cops that mismanaged that um, that investigation and, and, and that ultimately ended with the life of Breonna Taylor being taken from us. And I think that is something that we can tangibly point to and tangibly put our hands on that speaks to the growth, that speaks to the importance of coalition building to nonviolent direct action and to continue to apply pressure in community organizing. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that because as you were talking, you know, I was thinking about the win because you know, you're always supposed to begin with the goal, the end goal in mind, right? And one of the great things that if you can call it a great thing, I think it's a great thing that came out of the Breonna Taylor case and the Ahmaud Arbery case and the George Floyd case is that it elevated the narrative of police accountability. And so now what you see is now people who didn't know what a law officer bill of rights is, right? Now everybody is clear on, or more people are starting to become aware of what that is and challenging them in their local systems. Uh, people are starting to look at their own laws and their own structures in their government, right? So I think the, the, the impact of those movements have been far reaching even beyond that case. And I think if you guys haven't considered that a win, I hope that you know that's a that's a piece that you guys carry under your belt because that national movement is causing, you know, national the the national conversations create local change. And so I want to go to our last point. Your last point, your last step in this uh, talks about reconciliation. So talk to me about it. Like what is it and why should I engage in reconciliation? 
Yes, I think reconciliation is probably one of the most important steps in this process is because I think it goes back to what we talked about with personal commitment and recognizing that we uh, are not opposed to people, but opposed to the institutions that people represent. And when we believe in reconciliation, we reconcile with our brother and sister and humanity to restore and to reframe these institutions. And I think that is what makes movements effective and helps people live in a harmony and beloved community together. It is not to leave communities with a rupture, with a, with a brokenness. It is not to leave them, uh, you know, uh, pitted against each other, but to find points of intersection and agreement that one is able to build collectively together. And I think that is what is important with, with, with reconciliation is that at the end of the day, there was a settlement that came with the city of Louisville and the family of Breonna Taylor that seek to meet amends and to atone for the the loss of her life um, that ended with the city having to uh, pay out one of the largest settlements to a black woman in this country up to $12 million. And I think th th those are just some things that we talk about of how we reconcile with one another, how we actively begin to, to build back better in the terms or the words of President Joseph Biden, but, but recognize the importance of ultimately realizing this harmony that we so speak of. And so that also is just like negotiation, having to recognize that you may not get everything you want in reconciliation, but you begin to offer a, 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 a bridge and offer a hand to, to, to one to recognize that we are far greater than the instances that has created this necessity for change. And yet we intend to build beyond this and to create the world that should be. I think that is what ultimately is, is empowers us to, to continue to fight in this movement is to continue to build towards something that we do not see in the present tense, do not see in the here and now, is because we're grounded in an understanding and a truth of what can be and what is yet possible. So I want to talk about this, this piece of reconciliation from a perspective of faith and justice. Because when you bring up the word reconciliation, that can rub people the wrong way. Because some might take on the view that reconciliation is for those who have atoned for their sins or they're repenting for what they did. And some might argue that when it comes to certain systems, that they are structured that way by design and that there are certain people or certain groups that have no intention of changing the system. And so in a situation where someone is charged with paying out a settlement or making some type of concession is because they're forced to, not because that they're trying to make an amends. What would you say to the people like that? I think that that's a fair view. And I, we have seen through history that some people are not moved by what they have had to do. or They are not atoned for uh, their, their ills or sins, if you will. But I think that as people of faith, we are still required to uh, express that level of concern and expression of, uh, of or desire of, uh, of reconciliation is that we are grounded in different principles. We are grounded in understanding that faith moves us and that faith can move even the, the worst of the worst, right? Because we believe that transformation is possible for everyone and that we recognize that, that transformation is possible because the ultimate reality or fruition of a soul is one that has been reconciled to each other, to, to oneself. And I think that is what pushes us to see that 
that that an unreconciled soul is an undeveloped soul, right? And then that that one, and so we we want to see one develop and ultimately become their best self. And that when they withhold that process or withhold them themselves from ultimately reconciling or moving towards healing, that they're withholding themselves from their own healing that is a part of their own manifestation of their life. And so that is a it's it's a both and it's it, it we have to recognize it is an evolutionary process and you know we we must understand that as a part of that process we are constantly evolving and becoming a part of our best selves that's a that's a really good um response to that and i will say to you that i've been asked that question in many forums about reconciliation and it's always a tough question to answer. And actually, in the most recent forum, I was asked about reconciliation. I was like, I don't think anybody's offered me an apology. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, then, and, and, I, and I think that, you know, what that says, though, it doesn't mean that we can't reach a point of reconciliation. But I do think that we have to be mindful about when reconciliation is offered. Because I think, you know, offering reconciliation too early can also bring harm and, and hinder further movement further progression in the movement. But that's just my personal opinion. Um, I want to end this conversation with just your, if you had to stake your claim on the church being involved in the justice movement, what is it that you would say to the lay person, to the congregant, to the preacher um, that needs to get involved in the movement? And I, I preface that question by saying that, you know, one of the questions that I was asked at the you know onset of the pandemic it was a constant question where do we go from here what do we do now what am i supposed to do and it was a sign that the church had not not every church but some churches had kind of been disconnected from the movement what's the, where's the intersectionality of faith and justice and what would you say to those folks sure i think that faith and justice are one is that when we look at um justice as being the ultimate realization of love in public it is the um truest form of the ministry of jesus christ and the ministry that god has called each and every one of us to be co-conspirators in and co-creators of and i think that we 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 ought not see those two as bifurcated but see them as one is that faith and justice are one and with god's will for our lives and with god's will for our humanity is that we become one with uh, spirit and that becomes that that level of harmony and equilibrium is what justice looks like it is just oneness it is this purity it is this equ equity it is it is equilibrium of of, of of people and 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 spirit and the world intersection intersecting as one and i think that the role of the church primarily is to begin to give language to this movement, to give language to what justice looks like from a perspective of those who can dream and expect the impossible, right? That, that we believe that if you can have a mustard seed sized faith and you can move mountains, then truly we ought to be able to provide the language for what reparations looks like in this country and not Amen. begin to think that it's cost too much to give everyone uh, equitable land and equitable resources to live a fair and just life. We have to give 
the language to people to be able to imagine from their soul what justice looks like in public and what it looks like to create a nation that is truly grounded in principles of fairness, equity, and justice that the founding papers and the founding fathers had so uh, had so written on and and I think that that or written about and I think that is truly what is is the 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 calling or the the mantle the mantle and the mandate that is upon the church in this hour is to speak truth to power and to organize collectively and to build from the grassroots that so the AME church particularly was created as a social justice movement and if we recognize our history and recognize the 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 importance of the black faith tradition, it was organized, it was created as a form of resistance to white supremacist evangelicalism. And I think that is what the Black church must begin to reimagine itself as, that we are not uh, called to be those who just come and run and shout and sing and yell, but we're called to do work, to do justice, to love kindness and walk humbly with God. And when we reimagine ourselves and recommit ourselves to the true purpose of the faith and to the true purpose of the mission of the church, we'll begin to see the transformation that we need to see in this world. And that we are the hands and feet of God to do the work to bring thy kingdom on earth uh, as it is in heaven. Absolutely. That was good. That was, that was a really, that was a really, really good response. But that was a really, really good reset for where we are and for such a time as this. Many of us are celebrating the fact that we have a new administration. We are celebrating the fact that we have a new um, vice president who is a woman and she's a black woman and she's a, an Asian woman, right? A minority in leadership. But the fact of the matter is, is that none of that came without people organizing and people doing the work, people putting forth the call for justice and, and not just in, um, the subject matter areas, but in who we want seated in leadership. And so I thank you for reestablishing the call for the church, because what you basically just said is that our work can't end here. Our work cannot right. end here. And so as people are getting ready for local elections and as they're getting ready for redistricting conversations, I think that, you know, it's really important that as the church, we have a presence and we give people the language to pursue the causes in their community. So thank you so much, Reverend Green, for stopping by today. Thank you for having this conversation and this dialogue with us. You know, you've been in the game a long time. Tell people where they can follow you and what you're up to these days. Sure. Um, at Green the Rev on all social media and um, just continuing to do the work uh, on the ground in our local community here in New York. And uh, as you can imagine that with local elections coming up, we've got a lot of work to do to really uh, drill down on making this uh, a very tangible, realistic, beloved community. And as well, uh, we will continue to um, advocate and push for equitable justice with this uh, new administration is that we're grateful that we have a change in pace, uh, but we're not going to relent. And so if there ever was a time to, for people to get their marching shoes is now uh, wear your mask, get your shoes, because we got to go back outside because now is the time to do the work. Now is the time. Listen, um, Reverend Green produced a, a, a resource guide for you guys called Let My People Go in poverty, militarism, racism. It's a national resource guide that goes into much, much, much more detail um, on the steps that we've talked about today. You can find this resource at www.hiphopenation.com under our recent article section. 
And if you're looking for information around our advocacy tools, please check out in that same section, our, our, our advocacy guide, where you can find resources on trusted sources to gather your data, your information from. You can find um, tools on digital organizing and much, much more to help you in this fight. Listen, don't give up the fight. The time is now to continue the work. We are so excited that you tuned in and we hope that you join us again next week. Same bad time, same bad station. Peace.